What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its Opry ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, supplemental number 72. How far is too far? The one recorded live in Las Vegas. Welcome, everyone, to a supplemental episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion, and we are just back from Vegas, and uh, I don't know about you, Norman, but my arms sure are tired. But, um... Yeah, including, my, including my whole body. Like, uh, yes. No. Uh, yes, we just got back from Vegas, and that means that we did not do our regular recording last week, uh, but we did get to do a panel, uh, kind of a last-minute panel that we were very pleased with and wanted to share with you here. Now, John, I have to admit to everyone who is listening to this, if I do sound nervous on this panel, it's probably because I was, because this was my very first panel for the stage at at the convention, you know, at CreationCon at Star Trek at the 56. And it went from nervous to absolutely amazing because of our very special guests that we had with us on stage. Yes, we had some incredible guests. We had James Kerwin. We had award-winning sci-fi author Robert J. Sawyer. We were introduced by Scott Mance, who then, well... Yeah, keep listening. And we had a lot of audience participation as well. So check it out. And don't worry, your regular mission log will be back in the feed next week. But uh, hey, give us a break. We're working hard. Over these years, you know, we've had so many different mediums to to honor this incredible series, all of them. And of course, one of them is podcasting. So the official Roddenberry podcast, Deep Dive Podcast, is called Mission Log. And they have been doing every single episode, deep dives of every single episode. I was on one of them. I did uh, This Side of Paradise with them, uh, with Rod, uh, Roddenberry and John Champion years ago. <laughs> it was years ago because now they are way past uh, the original series. But we are going to be joined for a live recording of their of a very, very special podcast conversation that I cannot wait to hear, and it is, uh, it is a fantastic conversation that you are going to, to, to see for yourself and, 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 you know, have your own thoughts about this. So I would like to welcome to the stage the four, again, Mission Log is as good as it gets as far as podcasting for, for Star Trek. So I would like to welcome to the stage John Champion and Norman Lau, and they will take you through this incredible conversation for their live recording of Mission Log for Roddenberry Entertainment. John, take it away. Are we on? You're live. I'm not. You sound fantastic, by the way. Yeah, you sound just like you do on the podcast. Thank you, and good morning. Um, I'm John Champion. 
And I'm Norman Lau. You've probably heard that before. Right? You may have. You may have. And we will introduce our very special guests here in a moment. Um, what we're doing today is a little different than the Mission Log format. Normally, we watch an episode of Star Trek, as we've been doing for now over 10 years. Uh, August of 2012 is when Mission Log began uh, at this convention, was when our first episode was released. And so now, 10-plus years later... Here we are, and every now and then we get to break format and have a conversation about something else, not just reviewing and analyzing an episode. And so for those 10 years, I've been on the podcast for three years, um, replacing Ken Ray, Ken Ray being the co-host for the first seven, along with John. And yes, we, we are doing something different today. We have a subject that I think is going to be interesting to discuss, because that's what we like to do on the podcast. Certainly like, so. Interesting things. Yeah. Um, and what we want to do is make that interactive, and we absolutely invite your participation. Uh, but we'll kick off the discussion here, and we'll kind of give you the, uh, the, the general theme that we're looking at. But I, I want to introduce you first to our two very special guests, uh, friends of the show, friends of our Very special. <laughs> Extraordinarily special. Uh, at the far end of the stage, James Kerwin, a uh, director, Trek fan, Trek knowledge base extraordinaire. Why don't you tell us some of your credits and credentials? Um, hi, uh, I'm James Kerwin. I am a primarily a film director and some theater as well. Um, I directed a... My first feature was a science fiction noir feature called Yesterday Was a Lie that starred some Star Trek actors, uh, Chase Masterson and Kipley Brown from Deep Space Nine and Enterprise. And uh, that's kind of how I got involved in the whole Star Trek scene. Um, I've done several other films, uh, short films and theater since then. I also did this little tiny web series called Star Trek Continues, uh, for which <laughs> yeah. I was the writer-director of most of the episodes. Um, and uh, there you go. I've got uh, another project in development right now, but uh, knock on wood. So, What does yeah. your shirt say? Um, <laughs> have your triple spade and neuter. neuter. <laughs> okay, nice. <laughs> nice. And then uh, sitting next to James, uh, we're absolutely thrilled to have, again, friend of the show and personal friend, the Nebula and Hugo award-winning science fiction writer, Mr. Robert J. Sawyer. Hi, everybody. Thank you. Uh, I live in Toronto, but I'm delighted to be down here in Las Vegas for this. Uh, James and I uh, jointly wrote the teleplay for the final episode of Star Trek Continues, and I wrote the teleplay for the penultimate part, part one of the two-part uh, series. And for those of you who have been uh, subscribing to or reading the new Star Trek Explorer magazine, the very first issue uh, has a profile of me if you want to learn more about me. And my website is sfwriter.com. Awesome. All right. Uh, anything you need to plug? Right. Uh, you... So I'd like to plug Mission Log. It's a fantastic podcast. If you haven't <laughs> subscribed good. to it yet, that's missionlogpodcast.com. Yeah. Uh, I'd also say podcast.roddenberry.com for the variety of shows that Roddenberry produces. A lot of them about Star Trek, but other subjects in there as well. Um, so this panel that you have come to is called, uh, listed in the uh, uh, creation guide as How Far is Too Far? And... Norman and I have seen, as I'm sure many of you, we have Star Trek fans here. I assume that that is the majority of our audience, one or two of you. Yeah. Um, as we talk about Star Trek week in, week out, and we get comments, we get messages, we get long, thoughtful emails, opinions from our listeners about the topics that we discuss. And what we find very quickly and very obviously is that 
Everybody has a different take about everything. And as Star Trek has grown in the last 56 years beyond that original mission, beyond the original collection of Kirk, Spock, McCoy in the Enterprise out doing stuff, okay, well, you fast forward and you get to the next generation. And then you've got three more shows that come very quickly after that. And then you've got movies. And then you've got the rebirth of Star Trek in 2017 with now this expanded universe of... Discovery and Picard and Lower Decks and Prodigy, and not all of these shows land the same with every fan. I think it's fair for me to say that, you know. But in sort of a self-reflective mood, Norman and I ask ourselves, as we see what comes from our listeners, um, how far are those points that are too far? that maybe we can't get past as viewers, as fans, as Star Trek aficionados from day one? Are there places that maybe are are hurdles for us to get past in our fandom? And I'll throw out my favorite, well, two. I'll throw out two favorite ones uh, from the beginning. So as a kid in 1979, when Star Trek The Motion Picture came out, and suddenly... The Klingons didn't look like Klingons. They looked like something else. But as a kid, I got to go to a theater and just be amazed and wowed at this incredible spectacle on screen. And all of a sudden, the changes, you know, it wasn't the same color uniforms, the Enterprise looked different. All that sort of went out the airlock, and I was able to just enjoy the story and come back to that as my favorite movie over and over again. Okay, but fast forward a little bit more. 1987, Star Trek The Next Generation premieres, and I remember before that, in the lead-up, my friends were telling me, because they they got the rumors, you know, this is pre-internet, and they're like, there's a robot named Data, and there's a kid. And I'm like, is this lost in space? Come on, this sounds awful. How can that possibly be good? Oh, Oh, and a Klingon wearing a Federation uniform. Right. How is that possible? How can that possibly be good? But then we get acclimated to Next Gen, and we go like, okay, well, this is pretty good Star Trek. I guess I'll go with it, right? So I wanted to ask you guys, like, what are the things in your own fandom where you're watching Star Trek, you're enjoying it, and then you get to a point that shakes you up a little bit. You go, wait, wait, I, I, I can't take this. This isn't my Star Trek. Give me an example. Well, I was interviewed as just a guy who went, and I was, what, 20, in 1982, Star Trek The Wrath of Khan came out. I'm 22 years old, so that's 40 years ago, as everybody knows. And just a local TV station was going up and down the line of people coming out of the theater. What did you think? And I excoriated the film. I said, and now, of course, I have great admiration for it, but at 22, I said, this isn't Star Trek. What's with this no smoking sign on the bridge, which they had in the simulator? A complete disregard of Roddenberry's idea that we'd be better in the future. What is this with Jim Kirk suddenly being a gun collector? Right, as a Canadian, uh, I know I'm in Las Vegas here, so please forgive me, but as a Canadian, I was shocked to see that in uh, his uh, apartment in San Francisco, he's got a wall full of weapons. The militarization of the show. Uh, at that point. We all came to love what we Canadians call the Mountie uniforms, the red uniforms that they wore from two through the uh, uh, sixth film. Uh, But at the time, it was taking 
Gene Roddenberry's vision of a better, more peaceful humanity and of the enterprise as an exploratory vessel in the mold of Jacques Cousteau's Calypso and turning it into a very militaristic show. And it really, really bothered me. It took me several viewings, so I obviously found enough that made it worth going back, several (laughs) viewings to come to have affection for it. And now... Uh, I, I agree with you that Star Trek The Motion Picture is the best of the six classic it, films. Just but, a stunning movie. Yeah. But Wrath of Khan is the one that uh, everybody loves, and I would have to put it as second best for me mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here's what I want to ask, though, because this is really germane to the conversation today and what I want to hear from all of you. Um, you got to a point where these little details sort of short-circuited for you. You were like, no smoking sign, I, I, how can this be? Or... From now on, I will call that uniform the Monster Mountie uh, because of you. Yes. Uh, um, But at a certain point, you watched it, you watched you. What was it that clicked that made you think, oh, no, 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 now I can appreciate this movie? Sure. And it comes right back to, A, the literary quality of it, which was missing from Star Trek The Motion Picture. There was always a sense in... Star Trek, the original series, going back to one of my favorite, although not necessarily one of the most popular episodes, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Conscience of the King, which is, yeah. which is the, yeah. where Shakespeare, a traveling Shakespeare company, uh, you know, is hiding Kodos uh, the Executioner. But even to episode titles, All Our Yesterdays and things like that, there was a great sense that Star Trek was following in the tradition of classic literature and Shakespeare. And that's missing from Star Trek the motion picture. In its entirety, it's missing. But it comes back with uh, the, uh, you know, it drives me nuts when people will quote Khan saying, he tasks me and I shall have him, and not realize that they're quoting Herman Melville from Moby Dick. But Nicholas Meyer, whose film prior to Star Trek uh, to the Wrath of Khan I admired a great deal uh, time after time the H.G. Wells Jack the Ripper film that he directed uh, brought to it brought back to it this sense yes he brought that it was militaristic and naval instead of exploratory but he also brought back that this is epic literature and that didn't always follow through. It's not really there in Star Trek Three. It's not much there in Star Trek Four. But and let's Star Trek Five. It's not really there either. But Star Trek Six, which Nick Meyer directed as well, comes back to that with, of course, great Shakespearean actor Christopher Plummer, a Canadian, opposite great Canadian Shakespearean actor William Shatner, bringing it back home to that root. And David Warner. And David Warner. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what's so cool is figuring out like there are these moments where your initial reaction may be perfectly valid. Absolutely, those things stuck out to you, but then you came back and you're like, oh, wait, but now I'm starting to see the nuance and the, the things that really do speak to me. I, I had, I had. It's funny that you said the, the Klingons because I had the opposite oh, experience really? because I was not a Star Trek 
fan as a kid growing up. <clears throat> and my first experience of Star Trek was my dad took me to a re-release of Star Trek The Motion Picture when I was about seven years old, and I loved it. I absolutely was blown away by it. I had already seen 2001 at that point, and I thought that I really loved that kind of very intellectual science fiction. So to me, those were the Klingons. And I did, growing up, see the, wind up seeing the other fe- the features. I didn't see the original series until later in life, and I was like, I had the same reaction that Bashir had in, in the Trials and Tribulations. Like, those are Klingons? And my, and my dad was like, yes, those are Klingons. We don't talk about it. <laughs> um, but um, uh, what was the question? <laughs> uh, you know, for me, I would say that I, I, this is, okay, I don't know if that there was ever a point in Star Trek itself that I kind of said, this, this the line is drawn here, this far no further. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, one of the things that, um, you know, a lot of people are, have, have very strong opinions about modern Star Trek, as you said. Stop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, I like some of it. I don't like all of it. There are things about uh, some series that I like some episodes and not others. There's some series I like more than, more than others, but um, I certainly don't hate it. I watch it all. Um, one thing that I have noticed, though, that has bothered me um, isn't, isn't so much a thing that happens on screen, but... During the Rick Berman era of Star Trek, the latter two shows um, were, most, for most, the most part, show run by Brandon Braga, um, who, you know, love him or hate him, he's a good guy. Um, Brandon Braga is doing The Orville now. He did Flash Forwards, yes, Robert Sawyer. based on my novel, series. Flash yes. Forward. Um, yeah. and, and the thing about Mr. Braga is that if you would ever say to him, hey, you know what, um, I didn't like... This, this thing in this episode didn't make sense. Or maybe you shouldn't have done that. His response was, okay, good point. Good point. I'll think on that. Hmm. Point taken. Hmm. Noted. And he is the first person to admit, oh, you know, I, I should have done that better. I, I messed that up. I should have done that better. Um, I have found in modern Star Trek some, and I'm not pointing fingers or naming names, but some, not, certainly not all, but some of the people behind modern Star Trek when fans tend to say, I don't understand this, this didn't make sense in this story, or this, this, um, th- some of them tend to dig their heels in and plant a flag in it and be like, and go on Twitter and be like, no, 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 you're wrong. This is why we did what we did. And then, in some cases, giving lengthy headcanon explanations on Twitter of, oh, no, this is what actually happened. That, that, okay, but that wasn't on the screen. <laughs> like, I, how would I know that that's what happened? So <clears throat> I'd say one thing that has really... That is one thing that bothers me about the modern era. And again, yeah. not all of the showrunners and writers do this, and I'm not going to call people out individually, yeah. but some do. Yeah. And so I think that's maybe the point at which I've kind of recently at least been like, uh, this is too, too far. So do, do you get to a point, though, where you, you just sort of, you can gloss over that, you can reconcile and go, you know what, I like the story, or I like the acting, I like where we got in the end, and all the headcanon stuff, all the weird missteps in the way, you can just go like, yeah, you know what, I, I don't need to Maybe someday I will get to that point, but <laughs> not, not That is yet. not you. It I still know you bothers well. me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, John, you and I have talked about it. Like, there, there are these the ideas, you know, the ideas of the stories, the ideas of the series, and where those stories are going to take us. But I think that you and I, we've, I mean, we're, we're on record for saying this on the podcast, so mm-hmm. I have to own up to what I've said. Go ahead. I think the, the big, 
the, where it changed for me was Section 31. You know, you, you listen. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but this is great because that, then it's not so much like a stylistic thing, a visual thing, a detail. It, it's something that is fundamental right. in the script of Star Trek. Because for me, yeah. when they in, we introduced that in, in the episode, was it Inquisition? I believe so. Inquisition. So, Inquisition. Let's begin. Let's begin. Yeah. Well, when they introduced Section 31, mm-hmm. changing the, uh, the, pointing that out in the Articles of the Federation, yeah. it, now you take 200 idea, years. For 200 years. Now you take the idea of that, yeah. and every single time that there was an issue with something with the Federation, when they were, when the ships or when the missions, they moved on, did Section 31 clean up after any of those problems. This is the headcanon that is changing because of something like that. Let's go all the way back to, say... So, so wait, 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 hold it. So, like, Kirk shows up, he frees the feeders of all. Like, mm-hmm. It's called freedom, and you'll like it. Bye! Next week, Section 31, because <clears throat> they're like, all right, all right, we, we're, this we're going to... Fi- yeah, here right. we go. You yeah, didn't yeah. know about us, but now you know about yeah. us. Right? And <laughs> right. then, now you won't know With about us. With our black us. badges. Right. But, like, go all the way back to, like, see a mirror, mirror, and Kirk is trying to make negotiations with the Hawkins, you know, for the dilithium mining. Yeah. He said that we're not going to use force. You know, remember that. Yeah. Enterprise moves on. And then the Federation's like, well, we really need those dilithium mines. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Section yeah. 31. Uh-huh. Go get our minds. Okay, so what do you do then? Do you just plug your ears and go, okay, well, I'm, I'm just going to ignore that inconvenient truth that has now been retconned into Star Trek? I think it really depends on like, how you perceive that idea. It could be the black bag operation, Section 31, that has a badge, but they don't have a badge, but they do have a badge. <laughs> That's like, my here, favorite here, badge. Here we are, but we're not really here. Yeah. You can look at it that way, in, in, in a very kind of sinister way, yeah. or you don't. And it doesn't have to be sinister. The reason that it's there, I understand, but now you look at it as a fan, and then you start inserting that into everything that you've learned about what the Federation stands for, the hard work, the optimism, like the problem solving, the, the, the community building, being able to make these relationships with other governments and other planets because of the goodwill and nature of the Federation. Yeah. But then there's Section 31 right. that may or may not undermine that because it's out there. And that's, for me, that was problematic. Well, it, it, yeah, very much so for me. Section 31, though, isn't part of the Federation. They're part of Starfleet. And, right. and, right. and, and I, I would agree with what you were saying, except for the fact that it is depicted, at least in DS9, it is depicted as antagonists, you know, like oh, yeah, right. the, the yeah. Bashir is like, we're going to take these guys, Cisco's like, we're going to take these guys down. This, this is not okay that Starfleet has this. Right. Um, even in Enterprise, when you find out Reed has kind of been a Section 31 all along, there's there's a lot of oh, contention. Spoiler. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> have you not watched Enterprise? We haven't gotten to that yet. <laughs> we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. Um, so so I, the reason that I found it interesting, and Rob and I have had this argument a zillion times, but the reason I find Section 31 interesting is because it asks those, these kind of questions. Um, you know, Star Trek, one thing that has always bothered me about Star Trek is it's this perfect utopian future, and I, something that I could not relate to as a viewer. I did not see the society that I know represented on screen at all. Um, as I've said to Rod many times, if you want to go to Paris, do you show... Do you look at a photo of Paris, or do you look at a map to how to get, of how to get to Paris? And I find that sometimes Star Trek, one of its, in my opinion, failings is that it in some incarnations, it presents this perfect utopian future society without saying, well, here are the hurdles we would have to overcome to get to that society and depicting that journey. And I think that's something that Section 31 does. It lets you say, okay, wait a minute. 
there's, there, this human nature still does kind of have this undercurrent that's a little bit bad, some, some people. And so how do we overcome that? So that's, I, I like the fact that at least the Section 31 plot lines allowed us to ask those questions. Agree to disagree. I don't mind. <laughs> I, Section 31 in, see, Star Trek covers centuries of time. Yeah. Section 31 in the era of Enterprise, I can live with. Mm-hmm. Section 31 in the era of Discovery or Pike, Strange New Worlds, or Kirk, Mm -hmm. implicitly in Kirk in the background, I can't live with. I want to, you know, you you say, do we see those steps along the way? Yeah, Enterprise is earlier. The eugenics wars were earlier. There were uh, milestones, or as we call them in Canada, kilometer stones, that we passed (laughs) along the way to get there. And uh, it really rankles me um, as a Star Trek, you know, I I mean, I'm a pacifist, and I'm a pacifist because of Star Trek. Mm. The original series, which was set during the backdrop uh, in terms of real lifetime of the Vietnam War and the civil rights struggle and the conflict in the civil rights struggle between, you know, whether it was going to be Martin Luther King's version of a peaceful struggle or, say, Malcolm X's version of a more... Uh, violent struggle, right? Uh, All of this was the background of Star Trek, and Spock, who was the coolest guy on Star Trek, was a pacifist. Time and again, he said, you know, I I don't want to kill, maybe we should talk to the Horda, we should do this, we should do that. And to me, the signal line uh, from all of Star Trek, and you actually mentioned it, the Hulkins, is Vic Perrin, as the Hulkin leader, Uh, is saying to the real Kirk, pretending to be the evil Kirk in the alternate universe, he says, we will level your cities and take what we want. That is destruction. You will die as a race. And he says, Vic Perrin says, to preserve what we are. That pacifism is not weakling. Being a weakling, pacifism is great strength. We will die for our principles, which is supposedly the same reason that was being sold to people at the time to go and fight in Vietnam. Fight for, you know, well, not quite clear what the principle was, but, you know, you were told you were fighting for a great thing, right, in every previous war. And here was a guy saying, not fighting is just as powerful, right? And I can take... That's the Star Trek that I grew up with. And then when they say, yeah, but we're still actually having covert assassinations and all of this in the background just did not work for me. does not work. And that's a theme that was recently revisited in Strange New Worlds yeah. with the, uh, the Anar, en- uh, what's his name? The Anar engineering officer? Oh, uh, 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 Hammer. 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 Yes, yes. yes. Hammer time. His personal He's philosophy, a, his personal right. philosophy, his conversations. Mm-hmm. Really yeah. yeah. Um, I, I do know that we have some comments. I hope everybody has been thinking very deeply about this, but I know, uh, I believe Mr. Mance has his hand raised. Okay, okay, gentlemen, first of all, <laughs> Wait, well, welcome, welcome Scott to the Mance. stage. <laughs> I, I'd love these guys individually for what they have, what they have, first of all, contributed to, to conversations about Star Trek for, for all these years. So first of all, to your point about, about the line from TOS that, that really captures the spirit of what the Enterprise crew was in those days. It's from A Taste of Armageddon, when Kirk is talking to a 9-7, and he says, we can admit that we are killers, but we are not going to kill today. Yes. That's all it takes. Yeah. 
that is a Kirk moment. As for yeah. Star Trek II being sort of a militaristic depiction, yes, I picked that right up when I saw it. You know, yeah. I was 13 years old. The only problem old. with that, Scott, you're absolutely right, except when earlier in the episode he orders Scotty to implement General Order 24 and level the that, entire planet. But that is Kirk bluffing. Kirk knew how to bluff. Let's but face the fact it. That there don't is forget a General Order <laughs> Wait, hey, You're right? talking about the guy who created the Corbomite maneuver. No, I know. I don't forget that. <laughs> he isn't okay. going to do it. But hang but on, the hang fact on. That, that General Order exists. Uh, as, as for your point about, about Star Trek being, being militaristic, sure, I was 13 years old when I saw that. But what, what, what tied me over to that was, was I love these characters. And the characters were closer to the ones that I, that I grew up in TOS. As for your saying motion picture is, is underrated, I, I would absolutely argue that it is, if not the best, one of the best movies of, of TOS movies because it is the movie that is most like Star Trek. They're going after yeah, V'ger. They have to destroy it. Then they realize what V'ger is, and they realize they were wrong and they changed their approach and there's not a single phaser fired in that film no it, very true okay so so in terms of like my disruptor moments that you yeah. have all pointed out Gotta know. And, and you were all like absolutely valid in in pointing out these moments by the way section 31 how do you explain sigma eoshia 2 the planet of the gangsters when that starship left 100 years ago, Starfleet had 100 years to send Section 31 to clean up the mess. <laughs> but, so, so, if you okay. want to talk about cleaning up messes... Okay, well, hang on, yeah. hang on. Hang All right, on. Scott, okay. you're not even on the panel. I, 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 I'm, just, I'm just saying. Okay, so, so my, my disruptor moment was Deep Space Nine. What do you mean it's not going to be on a starship? What do you mean it's on a oh. space station? All right, so in that case, so just a formatting question, because it's interesting you mentioned DS9. Anybody who has listened to me and Norman go on and on and on in DS9, it's thematic moments. It's yeah. things like the introduction of Section 31. Not even the introduction, but the retconning of Section 31. That, also, that was more disruptive. But it's also what Section 31 did to certain characters. It made Bashir go against the oath of being a doctor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That, that, that is a in that way, it's thing. very dark. Yeah. And then the thing that we will always hold up and believe, we don't have nine hours to kill today, but the other thing is sort of this But contract. we can talk to somebody who can give us more time. Yeah, yeah we could. <laughs> but you look at, okay, here's our captain on uh, DS9 who hides his confession about what he did. Contrast with a couple of years earlier, we'll go to TNG, we'll go to an episode called The First Duty, and here's our lead character, here's our captain saying, the first duty is to the truth. And I go, okay, these are both powerful characters. These are both important milestones on how we perceive the message of Star Trek. How do I reconcile those two things? And I don't know if I can. And it doesn't make me not appreciate the quality of the writing, the quality of the acting, the quality of production on a show like DS9. But in some way, I have to sort of like divert my train of thought and go, well, what I really grok in Star Trek is the, you're welcome, is these messages that are espoused by people like Kirk or by people like Picard. How do I then fit Cisco into that model? But I think that's the, the beauty of having so many different series now, because maybe it, the series is where you need it to be when you need it to be that series for you. So if it's too dark, if Deep Space Nine is too dark for you right now, then you can go back to TOS, you can go to Voyager, you can go now into the future, into Strange New Worlds, yeah. you know, into Lower Decks, because that's the series that you need. 
at this time. Yeah. Deep Space Nine wasn't the series that I needed at the time. You know, I was a different person in a different place with a different headspace, and I needed more optimistic Star Trek. Hmm. It wasn't there for me. But it doesn't make it bad Star Trek. It's just not my Star Trek. Right. And look yeah. at the, the spectrum of being able to tap into all these different ways that you need that entertainment for the very specific reason that entertainment exists. We, we got an incoming Kerwin. Of right, yeah, no, <laughs> that, that is a great point. And, and, you know, there has been a lot said recently about gatekeeping in Star Trek fandom and this attitude of if you like this show, you are not a Star Trek fan. Or if you that is an ugly don't idea. like Just... this show, you are not a Star Trek fan in that con- contentiousness. And I, and I will say, I alluded to this before, I did not grow up watching Star Trek. I was not a fan growing up. Um, I was a Doctor Who fan. That's the background that I came from. And and one thing that strikes me in, in the difference between those two fandoms is that in Doctor Who fandom... Um, we were used to the show completely changing every three to five years. The cast changing, the showrunner changing, the writers changing, the script editor changing, the story editor changing, and even the interior sets of the TARDIS changing with no explanation. We didn't care. Um, and, and yes, there are people who say, oh, I don't like that doctor, or I like that, or I don't like that showrunner. But I've never, ever in Doctor Who fandom, well, very rarely, heard somebody say, if you like that showrunner, or if you like that doctor, you're not a real fan. People just yeah, tend to yeah. say, oh, okay, well, that one's for you, that one's not for me. This one. With Star Trek fandom, unfortunately, it's a, it's a lot more contentious these days, I think. And that, that makes me yeah, sad, you know? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I'm Team Paul McGann, by the way. Yeah, uh, Paul McGann's oh, great. John Pertwee. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, sir. Uh, please tell us your name oh, and, and your thoughts. Hi, my name is Jim. And one of the things I wanted to bring up is many of the things that you have talked about are thought-provoking. Whatever side of the issue you come down on, when the show finishes, you're thinking about it. Yes. And for me, that is Good the theme call. of Star Trek. And if an episode doesn't leave me thinking about something, then it's not really Trek. So for me, for some of the modern Trek, and I specifically point out J.J. Abrams, uh, when the show is done, I, entered, I very much enjoyed the show, but I'm not left thinking about anything. So with the new Trek TV series, some episodes are and some are not, but it's thought-provoking. I need, I need to be stimulated mentally. Otherwise, it's just like Star Wars. Star Wars, sure. entertaining, but I'm not thinking about it yes, afterwards. Yes, so. yes, yeah. so, Absolutely, wait, Jim. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In 1987, <laughs> so going way back, I'm 27 years old, 1987, when Next Generation premieres. Mm-hmm. And we're all very excited for it because we were first generation fandom, next, uh, TOS, and we'd gone through the drought of the 10 years with except for the animated series, there was no, li- you know, there was no live action track. We were so excited, and we had a group that got together of quite intellectual people. One of them is now a philosophy professor, obviously I'm a science fiction writer. We had a group that would come to Carolyn in my place to watch Star Trek. And then afterwards, the plan was we would go out to a local pizza place to discuss each episode, right, in depth. (laughs) And for that first season of Next Generation, there was way more discussion about what the toppings would be on the pizza (laughs) than there was about the episodes, because they were bereft of the kind of meat that we had found to argue about in not all 79 of the original episodes, but in so many of them. And it only was later, and I have to say, sadly, we're on the Roddenberry stage here, and I have nothing but respect for Gene Roddenberry's contributions. But by the time of Next Generation, you know, he was past his prime, and Leonard Mazelich mm-hmm. was his lawyer was interfering oh, yeah. and so forth. It wasn't until we got Berman to take the reins that we started to get back into 
oh my God, there's yes. some stuff to talk to, to chew over. So I, I've, I've lost where Jim went into the audience here, but Jim, your point is exactly right. Everything about Star Trek is that it leaves you with things to chew over afterwards. You know, this is, this is that, I was having this discussion with Rod not that long ago. It's, it's interesting because, yes, those early seasons of Next Generation were very, um, you know, Gene had basically said, there can be no conflict between the main characters. Right. And people were like, right. but there was in the original series. Yeah. But by then his <laughs> right. philosophy had shifted so much. It's yeah. a perfect society. Everyone does the morally right thing, and everyone agrees on the morally right thing. The thing that I could not relate to about that was that I, I see in everyday life, you can have two, three, four good people who want to do the morally right thing all look at the same situation and not agree on what that thing is mm. because they have different backgrounds. And I yeah. think that was one of the interesting things about introducing Rolaren into Next Generation was sure. that this is a person who was not a bad person at all. She had a comp- very unfortunate upbringing, had different experiences in her life, so she felt that the morally right thing to do was different than what Picard thought the morally right thing to do. And that brought about, like, like you're saying, yeah, yeah. discussion. Oh, God, that makes you think. That makes you ruminate on, oh, how would I handle that situation? What is the right thing to do? Right. And that, to me, is what the greatest of Star Trek does. You know, right. TOS did, and, and the later Next Gen did, yeah. Star Trek had a great turning point with a measure, The Measure of a Man, the episode about yeah, Data's course. personhood, which is, you know, uh, widely taught in university courses as... Uh, in philosophy, it's a very interesting episode. But it was uh, coming back to saying, let's have something where it's not morally clear. You know, they have to have an, an argument about whether or not this manufactured object is entitled to personhood. Excellent. Uh, yes, uh, go ahead and tell us your name and your, your comments. Hello, everyone. I'm Matthew. Hello. Um, James, I, I'm glad you brought up Rolaren because I was literally just about to jump into the, where my line was in Star Trek because I was thinking for a while, I'm like, I don't know if I really have one. Uh, but for me, I think it's the treatment of the Maquis. And I wasn't sure if that always... I, I appreciate it, especially for people who are writing, uh, writers and write characters. I, I, I don't know if I can... If I was able to fully resolve for me if, if Picard and Cisco were actually acting in character when it comes to the Maquis. Um, I think about just examples where, like, Worf could pretty much do whatever he wanted. Picard usually was okay with like giving him more and more and more slack. But when it came to Roe, and especially in the, in the second last episode uh, with Preemptive Strike, he just, he's like, no, you're going to get, if you, if you disobey orders, you're going to get cut off. You're gonna, like, there's no sympathy there. Um, you know, Cisco's willing to basically poison entire worlds uh, against the Maquis. And so for me, I was like, does that fit into the characters? And uh, did it make sense that they, rather than sympathizing with these people, decided to just bring the hammer of the Federation down on these poor colonists and their attempts to try to find a new home? And that, that was the one point in Star Trek where I'm like, I feel like this is over the line. I don't know if these characters should have acted this way and if it was just to extend the drama of the conflict. I mean, looking at the Maquis from kind of like this uh, more of a, a larger broad stroke idea of of what they represented, what they stood for. Mm-hmm. I think that they, they became, you know, kind of like a, a demonized uh, part of like the Federation, a broken off, we're going to do our own thing, you know, we don't really want to follow the Federation rules. But I think the, the problem overall, the Maquis, the Maquis, was the inconsistency of how they were portrayed. Mm-hmm. They were always used in some way, shape, or form as a way to show the Federation this is what happens when you step out of line, and this is what the Federation is going to do. Now, of course, they're going to have like, all these different extreme reactions to it, especially in Deep Space Nine, but I think it's using, it's using whatever they needed from the Maquis to be as a vehicle 
informed like how darker the characters went. Cisco literally like toxically bombing, you know, to find um, uh, what you know what's his name? Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, Eddington. 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 Thank there you. I never remember yeah, his yeah, name. Yeah. The Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> but look at what he did. Look at what the Maquis situation did to Eddington. Did what that did to Cisco in order for Cisco to make that choice. So when you're watching that, you're like. Is this the Federation I know? Right. Well, right. to talk about the Maquis, you have to talk about Voyager. And what really disappointed me. And we are, by the way. As much as I like was that. a Kate Mulgrew fan before Voyager. I was a Mrs. Columbo fan. I thought she's a spectacular nice. actress. Nice. So this is an, uh, the great achievement of Voyager, of course, is mm-hmm. putting a woman in the captain's chair. It should have happened decades earlier. That's yeah. the great mm-hmm. deficit of both DS9 and Voyager is by the time society had already passed them in terms of recognition that an African-American could do anything or that a woman could do anything, then Star Trek catches up and says that, right? The only place they were on the cutting edge was on bald-headed people. (laughs) But what they set up in the beginning of The Caretaker, the first episode of Voyager, was that you would have two very different belief systems confined to a single spaceship and having to encounter new civilizations and try to find a way to deal with them with a, some kind of synthesis of these two different worldviews. And once they dismissed that from Voyager, which was like by back Act 3 of The Caretaker, <laughs> right. it was completely of no interest to me, that series. They had had this wonderful premise, and then they just dissipated. Well, now we're all a happy Starfleet family again, and there's going to be nothing more than sarcastic banter from the doctor to be any kind of uh, conflict aboard the ship. And that just was pissing away an opportunity. Agreed. Yes, sir. Hi, guys. Big Hi. fan of the, uh, the podcast. What, what, what's your name, by the way? And, yeah. Name is Timor. Hi, Timor. Um, so, a lot of writers, directors on the panel. I'm a writer myself. And um, since we seem to be in this safe space of admitting things which are, I'm going to use the term bottleneck to get into a new show as opposed to a line because I feel like I can get through the bottleneck. It just takes me some time. Um, language is one of the things in new Star Trek that I'm bumping up against. And I mean things like... Sheer acting hubris? That Sorry. kind of language? Like colloquialisms. Oh, so, okay. sucks. Something sucks. Uh-huh. Or, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I don't remember the original series, people being like, gee whiz, and, and right. stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but maybe it happened, I, I, and I just forgot. Does any, do any of you guys bump up against this as well? And if not, is there anything that you think I can do to get over this because it seems nitpicky but at the same time it very much takes me out of the world when I hear a line like that from Ortegas or uh, primarily Ortegas but also Pike drops a lot of them in there as well. Well I, I was having a conversation with someone the other night about having profanity in new Star Trek. And I know that that was a very big deal in Discovery the first time that I think an F-bomb got dropped in Discovery and then followed by Picard, Picard. et cetera. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm really of two minds about it. I mean, as an adult who is not offended by language, I'm okay with that. And I understand that this is just sort of... Uh, the, the, the words themselves don't necessarily have that sort of power. We're, we're building dramatic moments after dramatic moments. But this person I was talking to said, you know, 
with my kids, if my kids were eight or nine, I wouldn't be able to watch that with them. The thing that pains me is that now that there's a barrier to Star Trek for someone else, because I want that eight or nine-year-old to find their Star Trek. And granted, they have Prodigy now, which is great. But if there's something that also prevents them from discovering another show and another set of characters, I think that's a mistake. Well, no, and just um, to be clear, I'm not offended. It's more just that it yeah. kind of like takes me out of the no, illusion. Stylistically, would, would it takes we still you talk out. like this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three hundred no, years. I, I get that. Yeah. I, I'll come back to Tamora's point in a second here, <laughs> yeah. but on the profanity point, mm-hmm. it's the problem that Star Trek had is the same problem that a number of my other fandoms have. Planet of the Apes, classic Planet of the Apes, Six Million Dollar Man, uh, are all things that started out as adult productions aimed at mature adult audiences. In the pilot film for The Six Million Dollar Man, which was nominated for a Hugo Award, Steve Austin tries to commit suicide rather than live as the man he couldn't be. There's also a moment where it's quite clear that he's sexually impotent Mm -hmm. because he no longer thinks of himself as a man. Mm -hmm. And it ends up being a show where he fights Bigfoot, right? It becomes a kid's show. (laughs) Planet of the Apes, the original Planet of the Apes, is in Sammy Davis's words, he said the most astute film about race relations that had ever been made to that point, 1968. And that means it was after so many important films about race relations, but he understood that it was an adult film. By the TV series, it had become just for kids. And Star Trek had suddenly been perceived, instead of being this really challenging show that Gene Roddenberry set out to create as an antidote to the show that was already on the air for a full year before Star Trek Lost in Space. He said, we're going to make the first serious adult science fiction show. And then somehow it became a question of, well, Star Trek is for eight and nine-year-olds. I can't let my eight or nine, what are they doing? It isn't. And so when they dropped the F-bomb, my only complaint, the first time they dropped the F-bomb, which is when Tilly says, this is effing cool, and Stamets says, yeah, yeah. "Yeah, you're right, it is effing cool, is it wasn't a dramatically powerful moment to drop it in. It was a gratuitous moment. But nonetheless, the producers were saying, Star Trek, you know, kids hear the F-bomb all the time on the school art playground. This Victorian mindset that somehow they're isolated from it is ridiculous. But this was a reminder saying, no, 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 Star Trek is for serious adults. It's not kiddie fair. It was never intended to be kiddie fair. When it became kiddie fair, it becomes unwatchable. And uh, so I think really that's the importance of it. That's the intent, the creative actorial intent behind it. Now to Timor's point, you know, Kurt once uh, teased uh, uh, somebody, I think it was Spock, about whether he ever dipped little girls' pigtails in inkwells, which were obsolete in 1966 (laughs) when he said it anyways. So these, but these anachronisms absolutely stand out. When they point them out, there's a great, uh, I happen to love the Savage Curtain from the third season where um, uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln, I gotta remember your American presidents, American Abraham Lincoln says to uh, Uhura, oh, charming Negress. Mm-hmm. And he says, oh, then he says, forgive me, I know that in my time, this was used as a, you know, uh, for property. And, Sir, uh, and she said, well, why should words. I fear words, right? And they bring a dialogue about the anachronism and very important dialogue to bring forward in a time 
where racially charged language then and now is still a huge issue in our in our society. But when it's just like, let's sound hip today, if there's any lesson Paramount should have learned after 56 years of Star Trek is that Star Trek endures. And when you say something sucks or something, you know, get your freak on, as, uh, they, as Ortega also said, whatever gets your freak on, uh, is going to sound incredibly dated 10 years from now. And if they really want Strange New Worlds or Discovery or Picard to have the legs that the original series has had, it should not be grounded linguistically in 2022. It should be grounded linguistically in the century in which it's set. Bravo. Well said. Thank you. That's why we have an award-winning author on our stage. Yes. Hi, good morning. My name is John. I'd like to uh, affirm morning, that John. motion picture does, in fact, rule. So, yes. <laughs> um, but anyway, we, the topic came up that uh, we were told that uh, there was no conflict between the characters, yet we see character conflict on the show. We were told that the Federation is a utopia. We, we often see many occasions where the Federation is not even close to that. Um, we're told in a lot of cases these things about the show by creatives that sort of are telling us how to interpret what we're seeing that's often in conflict with what is actually within the four corners of the screen. Mm -hmm. And whenever you're doing an analysis of the show, whenever I'm doing an analysis of the show, I've rapidly come to the conclusion that we have to almost completely discount or maybe, this might be too strong a word, ignore what the people who made the show are telling us about it and just paying attention to the four corners of the screen. And I find it a very different interpretation of Star Trek generally than what most fans think of it. So I'd like your reactions to that. I mean, John and I talk about this uh, on, on occasion on the podcast and even our own podcast. When the art is produced, you know, there is the intent for that art being produced. And then that the, the creators, the showrunners, the writers, directors, everyone involved, they all have this one vision. But then the vision is released into the public. And now it becomes everyone's interpretation of that particular piece of art. That art can, it can pull certain emotions out of you for whatever reason. It, anger, love, fear jealousy, excitement, you know, you know, anything under the sun that you're feeling because when you're watching something, that becomes a mirror of what you are feeling at the time and it pulls that information, that pulls that emotion from the screen into you and back and forth. That's the dynamic of entertainment. That's why we fall in love with what we watch. So, yeah, I understand, John. Like, yeah, there is a certain way of things uh, that, are, that are created, but once they're out there, it becomes what you interpret that creation to be, which is why it's always fascinating to hear about Star Trek and how people see it over the course of generations, not just series, but generations, because the person that you were 10 years ago isn't the person that you are today or will be in the next 10 years, but that show will be essentially the same, but your interpretation of the show will radically change. And and the people who made the show will change, and that breaks up a great great point. If you haven't seen Rod Roddenberry's excellent film, Trek Nation, watch it. It's a great documentary about Gene Roddenberry and Rod's relationship with him and so forth. Ron Moore in the film talks extensively about this. He talks about the fact that Gene Roddenberry's personal philosophy of the show changed dramatically in the 1970s. Um, when he started going to conventions and he, he says he, he started to view himself not just as a storyteller, but as almost like a prophet of the future. And so that is why when he started Next Generation, he said there cannot be conflict between the main characters and the other writer said, but there was in TOS. <laughs> yeah. and he, but he had changed his mind 
blind by that point, yeah. you know, and didn't want that anymore. So even the people making it, just, so to, to your point, yes, uh, uh, to a certain extent, you, you just have to watch it and take, take, take from it what, what you feel, what and you're seeing. You know? On the conflict thing, I'll just say I am friends with Brandon Braga. He did uh, co-write the pilot for Flash Forward based on my novel of the same name, and we're still buddies. And he said when people would complain, you know, what, about this conflict thing, he said, there are lots of shows you could write for. He's, other writers would say, I can't write for Star Trek, or that's too constraining. He says, I'll write for another show. This is Gene Roddenberry's show. If you don't want to do Star Trek, don't do Star Trek. And that got lost in the shuffle in a lot of places. And with J.J. Abrams, we haven't talked much about the Kelvinverse, who came into Star Trek as a guy who wasn't familiar with Star Trek. I think, and Nicholas Meyer will admit this, uh, you know, he was brought into Star Trek as a guy who'd never seen Star Trek. Uh, Brandon, who, was, as James alluded to earlier, is wonderfully open to criticism. Unlike a lot of Hollywood people, he says that his biggest weakness on working on everything that he worked on was a lack of familiarity with and affection for the original series. He was born in 1965, and he'd missed the original series. And he came on to Next Generation fresh out of uh, film school and didn't have an affinity for what mythology he was building upon. So if you don't want to be doing Star Trek, don't do Star Trek. When Star Trek is great, as I think it is today, I'm one of those who delights in Strange New Worlds and Discovery. It's because people working on Star Trek, finally, the first question in the job interview for so long was, have you ever watched Star Trek? You go, I love it, next, (laughs) right? And now it's, have you ever watched Star Trek? And they say, Yes, and then you say, okay, so in Operation Annihilate, when they had, <laughs> right, and if you can't pass the test, you don't get to write for the show, and that's the way it should be. You're building on 56 years of mythology. I don't mind at all when they deviate, right? When it's obvious that somehow in, you know, Amok time, that it seems that Christine Chapel had no awareness that that uh, Spock had ever been engaged, and certainly Nichelle Nichols, Uhura had no awareness, because she says, who is that, right, Uh, when she sees to bring on the screen. Uh, I don't mind them deviating at all for the sake of exploring stuff that we couldn't, that wasn't ever explored before. But they do it from a position of deep knowledge, respect, and love for what went before. And for me, that's a get-out-of-jail-free card for whatever creative exploration they want to take. Well said, bravo. We're, um, we're down to just a couple of minutes left, so we'll take uh, one last question here okay. from the audience. My name is Carl. Hi, Carl. Uh, by the way, first of all, thank you guys for being here. Seriously. Thank you for being thank here. You for, thank you for, for coming. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. If I can capstone it, I want to say this, that the actors get the limelight. They do. We get that. We understand that. But not enough credit is given to the script writers, and the people behind the scenes. Yes. And this convention is humongously at fault. And when I first started coming to this convention, David Gerald would be here. Uh, nor, uh, people who have passed away, Harlan yeah. Ellison was always here. Morgan Gendel was always here, who yeah. wrote The Inner Light. Uh, Brandon Braga was always here, who wrote more Star Trek than anybody else. Andre Bormanis was always here. Yeah. And this convention, and I, you know, I'm delighted that be on this panel and here at the Creation Convention, but the discounting of the behind-the-scenes people, and particularly the writers... 
right? as program participants to that. is yeah. absolutely unconscionable. Yeah. That's my point. It's like Star Trek would not exist without those guys. I'm no disrespect to the actors. They're awesome. But they wouldn't have a job without those background people, correct? Yeah. Everybody? Right. Yeah, right. Thank you very much. Uh, that, that, is, that even happened uh, on at, uh, I have to say, again, I, I love Paramount, I love Star Trek, I love CBS, but at Star Trek, the official Star Trek day last year, they had all of, there, there were no writers there, um, except from a couple from the new series, and, um, you know, the actors would be up there, the actors from Next Gen and the later shows would say, oh, look, we're standing on the shoulders of these actors from the original series. No, you're not standing on their show. I mean, you kind of are, but you're standing on the shoulders of the writers. The writers and the writers. Theodore Sturgeon and Jerome Bixby and Gene L. Coon and Jim Roddenberry and David Gerald and, you know, Dorothy. Dorothy Fontana. Yes, yes. 110%. Um, we, we do have to wrap it up, Scott. I'll, I'll give you the last word here in just a second. Um, I, I have to be crassly commercial for just a moment. And please remind everybody to go to podcast.roddenberry.com. Also come down to the Roddenberry stage. There's a lot happening today and every day of the convention. We'll have happy hour today at, I think, 6.30. And by the way, if you didn't get a ticket for the wine tasting, we're do- yes, we're doing a wine tasting today in a private suite from 5 to 9. And then tomorrow from 5 to 9 for the Romulan Ale Cocktail presented by America's top mixologist. So I do have tickets for those. Come to happy hour for tickets for tomorrow's uh, tasting as well. I want to thank everybody here. James, thank you. How should people find you, James? Uh, JamesKerwin.com. There you go. Rod Sawyer. SFWriter.com. Norman Lau. You can find me usually sitting next to John Champion. (laughs) (laughs) And we can be found at podcast.roddenberry.com. Scott, thank you for hosting us today. Of course. Uh, and ladies and gentlemen, I, I make a motion that when this podcast gets posted on Mission Log, on Roddenberry Entertainment, that uh, they do a sequel to this conversation because I have a whole lot to say. Let's do it. I certainly have a whole lot to say. That, including that's a promise. That later today... Uh, at 5 o'clock on the stage, if you are looking to get uh, some background information on one of the creative behind-the-scenes forces of the original series, and that behind-the-scenes force is Gene Kuhn, Larry Nemechek is going to have a very engaging conversation with Gene Kuhn's former secretary. So that is going to be a fascinating if you'll pardon the expression, conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on the stage for Mission Log. Amazing conversation, gentlemen. Thank you, everybody. Cheers. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers Adam Broski, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. This is a Roddenberry Podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.